Well, welcome back. We're in chapter 29 of Isaiah. We just started the book of woes last week. Chapter 28 was the first chapter in that section. We called it the book of woes because we see Isaiah pronouncing woe on the nation of Israel. And he's doing it because first their failure to trust in God during an earlier time when King Ahaz was ruling. And now again, as King Hezekiah has come on the scene and he begins to do the same things that his predecessor did, Isaiah begins to pronounce a prophecy of woe against him and against the nation of Israel. And today we're going to look more at the, uh, the details around what it is they've done wrong and how God is going to respond. Now, if you remember, we also saw how Isaiah was in his typical way, just masterfully weaving together uh, two kinds of prophecy. He's dealing with the prophecy of a near-term kind of mistake and, and, and consequence when in Isaiah's day, King Hezekiah enters into a covenant with Egypt in an attempt to uh, expel the Assyrians from the land of, of uh, Judah and the consequences of not accepting that the Assyrians in their land was in fact a result of God's judgment against them. And because they would not accept Isaiah's word that said you must be patient and let God's ju uh, judgment play out, they instead, through their leadership, through Hezekiah, decided to take matters into their own hands. And as we know, they turned to the Egyptians and entered into a covenant with their enemies. And for this mistake, Isaiah pronounces woes against Israel. But in typical fashion, Isaiah masterfully is weaving together two prophecies at the same time. One that relates to the near term, to Isaiah's day and to the events that we're talking about here with Hezekiah. But at the same time, he brings together prophecy about a future time when a different group of Jews in the nation of Israel will, in a similar way, feel a threat from uh, their, the world around them, and they will seek an alliance with their enemy. And in entering into a covenant with that enemy, they bring upon themselves even greater judgment. We know from last week that we're talking here about the Jews of the tribulation entering into a covenant with the Antichrist, and that resulting in God's judgment on the earth during tribulation. So that's the, that was the big picture that was beginning in chapter 28. In chapter 29 today, uh, we're going to see uh, what Isaiah does as he leaves chapter 28, uh, chapter 28 had two parables that finished the chapter, and those parables were a description of sorts of how God is going to deal with the nation of Israel during these times of woe and judgment. And if you remember the two parables, there was a parable about the farmer who was plowing the field, and the parable taught that the farmer does not plow the field forever. You don't just plow and plow and plow. Eventually you stop the plowing, and then you move directly to uh, planting of seed, and then eventually that becomes a fruitful harvest. And the point was that God, when he brings judgment, it's, it's like plowing. It's like stirring up the soil. It's a violent uh, effort in the case of how God brings judgment upon the nation of Israel. But it's not strictly to just take them through judgment, that, that eventually that judgment will end and eventually it will bring about a merciful uh, planting and harvest according to God's purpose. And then the second parable had to do with threshing. At the end of chapter 28, we saw how threshing can take place with a variety of implements. Some seeds are strong and need to be beaten out with a stronger implement. Other seeds are soft and cannot take the same kind of abuse. And this, again, is a, a parable that taught that God's judgment was not brought to destroy Israel, but was brought to dis, uh, discipline Israel. And God knew exactly how much they could take and how much he needed to merit out. And they needed to accept that as God's decree and judgment, not try to go around it. And these parables become a kind of framework for the rest of the book of woes. In fact, in chapter 29, we'll begin to see how some of that plowing takes place, followed by the planting and the, and the sowing, uh, uh, and then the final reaping of a harvest. So that, that, that parable becomes a kind of framework we can use to understand a little bit. And let's review some of the history of what we started to see last week. Assyria, remember we've said, has been in the land of Judah doing whatever they please, basically for 14 years. And the Assyrians were brought into the land by God to punish Judah, after Ahaz, their king, wouldn't trust in God to protect them. This is going back to the earlier part of Isaiah. We studied in uh, the earlier book of Emmanuel where we saw Ahaz uh, choosing to align himself with Assyria at the time as a way of protecting himself against his northern enemies, northern Israel and Syria. But as it turned out, that was a bad choice. He was making a, uh, an agreement basically with his enemy. And after Assyria had had their way with northern Israel and Syria, they came into Judah anyway and began to ransack the nation and destroy city after city after city. Now, 
in Isaiah's day, at this point, they've had about 14 years of occupation by Assyria, but Assyria has left Jerusalem, the city, alone, by and large. And that's probably because the city was so well fortified, there wasn't going to be much opportunity for the Assyrians to break through those walls. And they had the rest of Judah they could go about rampaging and taking over. And so, in some sense, you could say that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were in a prison. They were in their own city. They, they could leave the city in some cases if they wanted to, but for the most part, they didn't have use of the land of Judah apart from their own city. And the Assyrians uh, were content to leave them there while they did what they will in the surrounding countryside of Judah. But by Isaiah's day, the people of Jerusalem were looking for a solution. They wanted to get rid of these leaders, these, these uh, invaders. And Isaiah responds to that desire by counseling them not to resist God's judgment because this is, in fact, by God's decree that the Assyrians were in the nation. But just as in Ahaz's day at an earlier point, in this day, the people rebel against the prophet and King Hezekiah decides to enter into a covenant with Egypt, hoping that Egypt could expel the Assyrians from the land. And through Isaiah, in the book of woes, God responds by bringing the nation through a new round of judgment and discipline, but ultimately one with a good purpose. This is the plowing and the threshing parables again. It was going to be a period of judgment that would give way to the sowing of a new harvest. Now, in the chapters that follow, beginning with tonight, chapter 29, Isaiah is going to tell us how God is going to actually accomplish that judgment through a series of woes. And as we said, that's why the book has this name, the book of woes, in this section of his book. But most interesting of all, along the way, we're going to see Isaiah weave in discussions of another future time when Israel enters into a covenant with the enemy during that time of tribulation that we've already described. All right, so as we go back into the text of Isaiah, into chapter 29, uh, we see Isaiah beginning to describe, as I said, how God actually accomplishes this, this period of judgment against Israel because of their alliance with Egypt. Beginning in verse 1, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel the city where David once camped, add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. And then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. Well, that's how we open up the chapter. And just looking at the text in those first four verses, there's some immediate uh, clues there to tell us what God has planned for the city. And first, notice as it begins there, it says, Woe, O Ariel. Ariel is a Hebrew word. And it actually has two meanings. It's a word that has both the meaning of lion of God or it can mean hearth of God, like a fireplace of, of God. And in this particular passage, Isaiah uses that same word for both meanings at different times. And the context tells you which one he means in this case. In the first verse, we know he's talking that... And to begin with, we can see that the word itself is being used as a metaphor for the city of Jerusalem. You can see that clearly in verse 1 when he says... Ariel, the city where David once camped, or, or the word camp there can also mean pitched his tent. We kind of we say it differently. We would say hang your hats or something like that. But it, it's refer referencing the city where David once lived. So Ariel we know is Jerusalem. But the name Ariel is not a traditional name for Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah is using it here euphemistically. So in the first verse, he's calling uh, Jerusalem this, the Lion of God, the city of David. And then down below in verse 2, he says, I will bring distress to the Lion of God. And later in that verse, and she will be like an Ariel to me. And here we have the second meaning of the word. She will be like a burning pit to me. So God is describing how he is going to turn the city that he favors into a city of judgment. And how is he going to do that? Well, if you look through the text now at verse 3, the method that he intends to employ also is fairly obvious. He says, I will camp against you. I will encircle you. I will set up siege works. I will raise up battle towers. These are all descriptions of an army coming against a city in the way that was done in that day and camping around the city and circling it and putting up these uh, elaborate engineering devices that were intended to breach the walls of a, of a walled city, of a defended city. And this is exactly how God brought judgment against Jerusalem in their day. 
Remember last week we talked about how Assyria had come into the land and they were marauding around in the land of Judah, and that's true now here at this point. But at the point where they rebel against God and go seek this alliance with Egypt, God now turns up the heat, if you will. He turns up the dial and he decides that he is going to bring Assyria now directly against the city of Jerusalem. And after the 14 years of being in the land, they eventually come up against the city and begin to siege it in the way that's described here. Then in verse 4, you see the effect on the city, that the inhabitants of the city are brought low and that there's suffering, that they're, that they're so scared, they're so weak, uh, that their voice is coming up from the ground where they lay prostrate in a whisper. So th- this is a picture of how the nation of Israel or the, the city of Jerusalem is affected by the siege. Now, we know historically the Assyrians never did fully break through the walls and take the city. But, you know, if you, they made the city a miserable place while they were camped against it. And it is all a period of judgment that God has orchestrated against that city. Now, the full details of what goes on at the point when this siege takes place, or at least many of the details, are reserved for later in the book of woes. You'll see those when we get into about chapters, you know, mid-30s or so, as we hear the story of Hezekiah and how God... Uh, brought the nation of Assyria up against the walls of Jerusalem and how uh, Hezekiah dealt with them when they were there. So that, that waits for later in the book. Okay, but now notice what happens next in the text because in verse 5, the tone of everything changes. Verse 5, But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away. And it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire, and the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and when he awakens, behold, he is faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. Well, now, look at how this has turned. If the first half of, the, of, of this opening sequence, this, this introduction in chapter 29, if the first half of that sequence shows God's anger and his wrath and his judgment coming upon them, now this section, 5 through 8, shows the opposite side of the parables. The first section was the plowing. Here we have the sowing and the reaping. These enemies, he says, will camp against you, but it will all amount to nothing in the end. In an instant... They'll all be gone like chaff, suddenly, instantaneously. And, of course, we know what that means because we remember if you, if you were here in an earlier week, we studied uh, ahead a little and we looked at chapter 37 and for how the angel, uh, angel of the Lord will go out and destroy the entire Assyrian army in a single moment, supernaturally, fighting on behalf of the nation of Israel. And it will be so sudden, he says, it will be like the, the, they dreamed the whole thing. Verse 8 actually speaks from the point of view of the Assyrians themselves. They have these desires and they dream of getting through the walls and destroying the city, but then they're going to awaken without those dreams satisfied, so to speak, because they're not going to get what they came for. In fact, the entire army is destroyed at the hands of Christ himself, who comes as the angel of the Lord. We studied that a little bit already. We'll come back to that, of course, when we get to chapter 37, where we see this actually taking place. They defend the, he defends the city of Jerusalem entirely in a single moment, Now, when we looked at this same scene earlier in studying Isaiah, we talked about that this moment, this moment of Assyria coming against the city of Jerusalem and sieging it, not completely penetrating through its walls, and then having the angel of the Lord or God himself fight Israel's battle and destroy the entire army, we said that that event is a foreshadowing or picture of of that same event occurring later in Israel's history. In a later time, when we know there will be another army, that converges on Israel, a new Israel that's, that's been regathered into her land, and that army will come against the city and have uh, already taken over all of the land of Israel proper, of Judah, but they will be right outside the gates of the city seeking to breach its walls, and as they approach the city and are, are seeking to break through, God himself, Christ himself, will return and rescue him. That was the foreshadowing of how Christ returns in tribulation to save the nation of Israel, that is, uh, camped in its city. We saw that picture. And let's re- review some of that out of Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. He describes in chapter 14 this same moment. So if we just saw Isaiah describe in an overview way the intentions God has in Isaiah's day to bring Israel 
low at the hands of the Assyrians, but then rescued them in the end. Let's look at the description in Zechariah now of that same event in the future, as God will repeat it in a sense with a different audience. In Zechariah 14, verse 1, we hear this. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east city. And the Mount of Olives will be split in in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. Well, in that larger section, you see the scene of Jesus's return at the end of tribulation to fight against the armies of the Antichrist who come against the city. And in that day, that is the picture, that is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah is giving now in this part of his book of woes. It mirrors the scene perfectly that we'll later study in chapter 37. Now we see another parallel in verse 9, Isaiah 29, verse 9. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a sleep, has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which... <laughs> When they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. This section, Isaiah is talking to the Jews who will experience this coming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians that he's described. But before this coming experience, they're going to be blinded spiritually. They're going to be like their leaders, the ones that Isaiah described earlier in this book as drunkards who stagger with strong drink. Only in this case, he says, it's not because of wine or strong drink that they stagger. They are spiritually blinded or or spiritually in a stupor. God himself, it says, has covered their eyes, silenced their seers, prevented their prophets from knowing what's going to happen or 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 those who would try to predict the future. And it says specifically, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who's put them in this state of blindness. Remember, they're going to have these words. Isaiah was speaking in his day the same words that he eventually wrote down in the book that we now read today. But it wasn't as though the words weren't out there before he wrote. He was a prophet and he was speaking what God had given him to speak. So he was warning these people of the very events that were going to come upon them for their judgment because of the way they had entered into this covenant through their leadership and uh, with the covenant in, uh, with Egypt. And they had this information, they knew it was coming, and yet God says they're not going to be able to understand and make sense of Isaiah's words. It'll be as if somebody who is illiterate is given a book and asked to read it, and he'll say, I can't read. They won't be able to understand the words of Isaiah's prophecy. And so then the question becomes, why? Why is God specifically putting upon the nation of Israel a kind of spiritual blindness so as to prevent them from understanding what Isaiah is telling them about this coming Uh, judgment, and then, of course, doing something about it. It reminds us back to Isaiah chapter 6, where God gives him his commission and then specifically tells him he's going to be sent to a people who are not going to be allowed to hear what he has to tell them. Well, in this case, the specific reason is so that they would not avoid the judgment. That, in other words, God wants to write down and uh, to, to speak through Isaiah and then have him write down these words of prophecy, but it's not so that the nation of Israel itself would actually understand those words and avoid the judgment in their day. Rather, it was to authenticate the prophet and his ministry, and of course for us later today, to instruct us as to God's purpose and will, but it was not so that the nation of Israel could avoid the judgment. This part of the experience with Assyria also has 
an important parallel for future Israel. Here again, Isaiah telling something about the nature of the times for Israel in the day that Assyria came against them, but also this prophecy has a parallel for what we know will be true for the nation of Israel when they enter into that uh, other covenant with the Antichrist during the tribulation. In the future, when the nation of Israel is about to enter into judgment of tribulation because of that covenant, God is going to have put them into a period of spiritual blindness, something that prevents them from understanding God's word properly. And therefore, they walk ignorantly, uh, unaware, into the planned judgment during tribulation that he has appointed to them because of their sin. And God is once again, in this future day, going to be the one who causes this blindness so that the Jews are assured of experiencing the judgment that God has planned during tribulation. And just as with the Assyrian situation, this new blindness does not arrive at their destruction because in the end the Lord will rescue them and he will restore them, but not until they've experienced the judgment that he has determined they must first experience. Paul himself describes this parallel of a future experience of Israel in the time leading up to tribulation, a time when they will be uh, hardened or blinded. And he describes it in Romans 11, verse 7. He says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Well, you may remember these verses from when we studied Romans not too long ago, but now I want you to see them in this new light under the context of Isaiah. Today... In this period of time as we exist, waiting for Christ to return, the Jewish people, we're told, are under a period of spiritual blindness. And it's one that's been instituted by God to ensure that the nation remains under his judgment for the time he is, he is allotted. They will remain in this state, in fact, until they endure the coming tribulation which awaits them and along with them the whole world. It's the same parallel for what we're seeing here in the time of Assyria. Just as in this first experience in preparation for the attack of Assyria, this stupor is by the hand of God. And it remains, of course, until at the last God releases them from that blindness so that they may know Christ. Remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the parallel in Zechariah 12, that it is by God's hand that the nation of Israel comes to know Christ as their Messiah in that last moment at the end of tribulation. And as with the first experience in preparation for the attack of Assyria, This stupor is by God's hand until God releases them from that blindness. Look at Isaiah 29, verse 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of the discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? What is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Because of this hypocrisy and sin against God and their unwillingness to follow him from the beginning, God is preparing a final moment of judgment. And just as before, the the sin begins with leaders who lead Israel astray in Isaiah's day. Remember, it started with Ahaz leading Israel astray in his day, and then that resulted in the nation of Israel being under the judgment of Assyria in their land. That was what we studied earlier in the book of Emmanuel, that God sent Assyria, he called them, he whistled to them, and brought them into the land so that they would become a kind of judgment against Israel for their unwillingness to rest in him, but instead they decided to rest in their own protection through alliances. And then that gave way to Hezekiah, who now we're studying as we see the book of woes. We're watching Hezekiah repeat Ahaz's mistake, a uh, king Hezekiah looking to Egypt for an alliance to try to kick Assyria out instead of being content to accept God's judgment for the time that he has allotted. So leadership matters. If you remember in Luke's gospel, in, uh, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, In chapter 15, Jesus 
describes the leaders of his day. And he actually quotes from this section of Isaiah when he describes those leaders. In Matthew 15, verse 1, Jesus says, uh, Matthew says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your mother and father, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his mother, father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precept of men. Jesus says that Isaiah's words, the ones we just read out of chapter 29, were actually speaking not only of Israel's leaders in Isaiah's day, but also of future leaders of Israel, even in the day that Jesus walked the earth. He was prophesying, Jesus said, of the leadership of Israel that extends all the way through a period of judgment, that, that the leadership of Israel was not listening to God, that the leadership of Israel was only following their traditions rather than actually following God's commandments, and that that was going to continue throughout this period of judgment, throughout this period of spiritual blindness that God had instituted on the nation of Israel. So by that same blindness, the Pharisees and the rest of the leaders of Israel missed Jesus when he came as their Messiah. And by that same blindness, they're going to miss the message of the gospel for the most part all the way through the time that we live now, up through the time of tribulation. And all of this designed so that they would be taken through a period of judgment God has intended for them on the basis of his plans and their prior breaking of his covenants. And in response to these leaders' poor judgment and in leading their nation astray, first God made them blind to prevent them from understanding Isaiah's explanation of how the judgment would come. And then in the future day, the Jews are hardened, as Paul says, to prevent them from knowing the gospel at all. Now in the time, if you want to draw the parallels back into Isaiah's day, in the time of Assyria... God brings the judgment to a climax with the Assyrian siege of the city of Jerusalem. That was the tribulation, if you will, for the Jews of Isaiah's day. So you have, in Isaiah's day, the near-term prophecy. The near-term prophecy is, you have not been faithful. Because you've not been faithful to God's commandments spoken through the prophet, you will see his judgment. His judgment is, the city sieged by Assyria and the mayhem and the stress upon the city that comes from that siege. And he says that I am going to bring upon you a stupor, a spiritual blindness, so that even as you hear these words spoken, you will not receive them properly and be ready for this judgment. You will go into the judgment unknowingly so that it has its full effect upon you for your sin. And then taking that same picture and moving it to a future day, a similar set of events occur. The nation of Israel, we're told in this future, will enter into a covenant with the Antichrist and tribulation will ensue. But all the way through that time, up until the end of tribulation, the nation of Israel will be ignorant as to the words of the gospel itself so that they may not receive Christ and avoid the judgment that God has prepared for that nation because this is his judgment against them and his words do not go out and return void. If he has pronounced that there will be judgment on the city and judgment on the people, then there will be. And he will hold them to that and this is the way in which he does that. Here in the passage we just read out of Isaiah, we see him looking forward to that uh, rescue, if you will, to that time in which the sowing Uh, takes over, the the plowing of the field stops and the sowing begins. In the last days, in that final climactic judgment against the Jews in the end of, of of the seven years of tribulation, you see Isaiah say in verse 14 that God will once again deal marvelously with his people. You notice the words once again there. He's referring to the fact that God will repeat these circumstances a second time in the future, that once again he will come against his people just as he did with the Assyrians in the time of Isaiah's day, but now he will do it marvelously, wondrously, marvelously. The word for marvelous is para in the Hebrew, and it literally means a surpassing, extraordinary way. So we're talking here about God doing something out of the ordinary, even for God, a kind of surpassing, uh, absolutely out of the ordinary thing. And of course, we know that must mean the tribulation, the great tribulation, a kind of judgment brought upon the earth different than anything that God has ever done. One that reveals the secrets and the weaknesses of men, one that brings them down from the haughtiness in which they imagine themselves, as as the text shows, to be their own gods. As Isaiah quotes in verses 15 and 16, he says, You turn things around, 
you think, you think you're hiding from God, you think you're hiding your bad deeds and saying, who can see it? And you think that you can be considered equal to the potter, that there is one who did not make you and he has no understanding. But in fact, you're wrong, as Isaiah points out. And God will deal with them in a way that shows the judgment of God, shows the power of God that they might know he exists, shows his wrath. But just as Isaiah's parables in chapter 28 suggested, this judgment is also just for a little while. Verse 17, is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word and and ensnare him who who adjudicates at the gate and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. So in verse 17, we're told God will return to bringing favor to the nation of Israel. And at the conclusion of his judgments, sowing begins again. This is back to the parallel analogy that he had at the end of chapter 28. He begins planting seeds now or restoring the nation of Israel after the judgment has had its good effect on them, had its purpose on them. And in that day, he says, the deaf will hear again, the blind will see again. They will come again to know the Holy One of Israel. Jewish rabbinical leaders, as you may know, were were well known for their ability to memorize the entire Old Testament word for word in Hebrew. And yet, through all that memorization, they missed their Messiah because they never understood the text of the Scripture as revealed by the Holy Spirit. Instead, they relied on the interpretation of Scripture that they received from the commentaries written by former rabbis, the Midrash, the the books that had been written over the centuries by rabbis who tried to make sense of the text without really having the, the understanding of it, without having the Holy Spirit to guide them through it because, as Isaiah said, they've been placed under spiritual blindness for a period of time. And these are the leaders that Jesus described who are stumbling in drunkenness from spiritual blindness. And so at the future day, and as Isaiah describes it here, they will have an opportunity to finally see the truth and that's how he will restore them. So let's just take a moment to review now how the two parallels are working in the story so far. There's a near-term prophecy spoken about the events of Isaiah's day, and there's a parallel application of that prophecy spoken about how God is going to repeat most of the same circumstances for a future Israel. In the near-term, we're talking about the nation of Israel receiving the judgment that comes upon them for their failure to trust God and the word spoken through the prophet Isaiah relying on him rather than seeking an alliance with the enemy. But because they seek the alliance anyway, God brings the Assyrian army against the nation of Israel and their walls, sieges their city, causes them distress, and puts them under spiritual blindness so that they would be assured to go through that stress and not avoid it. But in the end, he opens their eyes so that they might know the truth. In the time of Isaiah, the way that God opened their eyes, you may remember, is in a a section of Scripture which, again, we will come to here a little later uh, in chapter 37, but for now we can just address it in passing to answer the question. Isaiah, uh, in chapter 37, describes King Hezekiah famously receiving a threatening letter, basically, from the Assyrian commander outside the walls. And the letter essentially says, we're coming after you and you have no hope, you should surrender. Hezekiah takes this letter in distress, goes to the temple and spreads it out before the Lord uh, in prayer, asking the Lord to protect them and to guide them and to rescue them from this situation. In fact, just as as I said, jumping ahead to Isaiah 37, just one verse, Isaiah 37, verse 20, he says, Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. That's the appeal that Hezekiah makes to God, asking for God to rescue the nation of Israel in his day from the Assyrians who were around the city. And in answer to that appeal, we know already God promises to fight this battle and to deliver Jerusalem and eventually does it through the angel of the Lord. So now, in the parallel uh, application of these, of these sections of the book of woes, what do we know is future to our, even our day today? Well, we know that there will be a future Israel gathered into her land as there is already today. This future Israel will enter into a covenant with their enemy of that day thinking that it is the right and proper way to protect themselves. And we know from, uh, from what Daniel teaches us 
that this covenant opens up the opportunity for the nation of Israel to begin sacrificing again on their Temple Mount. And we could speculate a little bit about what might be going on in that day, but it seems sensible to assume that somehow the Antichrist in his world position has the authority to grant them that opportunity to be back on their Temple Mount, and they take that opportunity to enter into a covenant with him. But instead of relying on God, in some sense, they are returning to their old ways of relying instead on the enemy, and in doing so they ensure a judgment for themselves in tribulation. But again, just as was true in Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel is under a time of, of blindness, spiritual blindness, so that they will not uh, be aware that God's judgment is coming, even though Isaiah said it is, and they walk into that judgment unknowingly. But also, just like in Isaiah's day, it is not a forever judgment. It is a short time. The, the farmer only plows for so long, and then it's time to seed again for a harvest. And in the end times, we know that the Lord returns to the nation of Israel to rescue them in response to their cry for him. We studied this a little earlier in the book out of Zechariah chapter 12 when the city is crying out to him for his return. And if you remember, I asked you all to look at Psalms 80 if you wanted to see the text, the, the actual words that are being spoken by the nation of, of Israel in the city of Jerusalem when they cry out for Jesus, when they're asking for Jesus to return. In Psalms 80, verse 2, this is just a small section of it, but you get a sense of it pretty easily. In verse 2 of Psalm 80, we hear this. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Psalm 80 goes on and on with more of the same and you get the sense right away that these are people under distress and they're crying out to God for rescue. And in response to that cry, we know, as Scripture tells us in Zechariah 12, the Lord does come to defend and secure Israel just as they ask. And in Isaiah's day, that rescue comes as the Lord fighting the battle for them, destroying the Assyrian army. In the future day, it's the Lord coming with his holy ones behind him, as Revelation 19 describes, and they destroy the army of the Antichrist around the city in their day. What a beautiful parallel. You get to see the future and see the parallels to Isaiah's day and see so much detail that corresponds, you get a much better understanding of what the circumstances will be like in that future day. And Isaiah confirms this in chapter 29, verse 22, when he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not, be, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of his hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. Clearly, we see Isaiah reflecting the way God brings these two respective periods of judgment to a positive end for the nation of Israel. Remember, these statements, could, the, the verses I just read, 22, 23, 24, they could have been said about either Isaiah's day or the future. They apply to either one. They apply equally well to either one. Now remember, as we've said before, though, these statements are true with respect to Israel as a nation. This is something we've covered in here in the past. I used the analogy of a lake in the past. I want to, I want to give you that again here now so that you understand all of what we're talking about here, all that Isaiah is writing, is true for the entity of Israel, for the nation of Israel. It is never intended to apply to every individual Jew within that entity. Going back to the analogy of a lake of water, if you pick a lake like the one here near San Antonio, Canyon Lake, on any given day, Canyon Lake is made up of a different set of water molecules. Uh, each molecule could be thought of as like an individual Jew within the nation of Israel. On any given day in history, the nation of Israel was a different set of people. But God's promises here are being spoken to the nation as a whole, regardless of which individuals are happening to be alive at any given time. So, just as with the lake, you may go to the lake this year and you call it Canyon Lake. And then you go back to the lake next year and you call it Canyon Lake. And you think of it as the same lake both times. And yet, we know that the water molecules themselves have changed. Nevertheless, you still look at it as the same lake and you still think of it as the same lake. And that's the way God is viewing the nation of Israel. He's speaking these judgments and these promises and these prophecies about a group of people without necessarily talking to the individual outcome of any one of those Jews along the whole way, regardless of whether the nation was under judgment or in a period of restoration, 
you had men and women within the nation of Israel who by faith were saved because of their trust in God for a Messiah, and you had others who were not. But regardless, the whole nation is caught up underneath the leadership of those who are appointed over them, and the sin of a leader can bring the people with them into judgment, and God pronounces his judgments against the nation of Israel or his restoration, for that matter, without respect to who is in the nation at any given point. That's a very important concept. You have to keep that in mind as you want to understand what Isaiah is saying throughout his book, or really throughout the entire Old Testament. And now in the beginning of the next chapter, we're moving into now chapter 30, we're going to see Isaiah specifically address the woes for Israel in Hezekiah's day for their unwillingness to, for their willingness to seek a covenant with Egypt. Now, we're not going to go all the way through chapter 30. We're only going to get through a section of it today. Let's begin in chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, and to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoam, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev, through a land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Well, this section here of chapter 30, as it opens up, as you see, has Isaiah pronouncing woe to the rebellious children, describes the Lord, to his children. But notice why. They're rebellious because they execute a plan, but it's not of God. They have these ideas to make an alliance with Egypt, but that's not what, what God's Spirit was directing them to do. So they were adding sin onto prior sin. And it's this adding of sin that causes God to turn up the heat. That in the time of Assyria, the turning up of the heat was for them to move from the surrounding land where they were already present because of Ahaz's sin. Now he brings them against the city in a concentrated effort to break through the walls and makes life even worse for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That turning up of the heat was a result of Hezekiah's sin, sin upon sin. And it will happen a third time, in fact, as the nation of Israel enters into the tribulation because of a covenant that their leaders enter into with the Antichrist. So it's this adding of sin to sin that causes God to deal with them in the way he will. And then he describes in verses 2 and 3 and so on how they went about this plan of theirs. They proceed down to Egypt without consulting God. They take refuge, if, if, as they tried anyway, with, the, say, with uh, Pharaoh, trying to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, so to speak. And then God says, because they did that, in the end, it will amount to nothing for them. In fact, where they thought they were going to get profit and help, they're going to end up with shame and reproach. Now, we know this is historically accurate. The nation of Egypt didn't, did nothing for Judah. In fact, they made promises. And as you see down in chapter 30, verses 6 and 7, a description of how they sent ambassadors down and princes down there. Uh, Israel did. They put, they put riches on camels and donkeys to pay off Egypt for their support. But in the end, it went to nothing. At the end of verse 6, to a people who cannot profit them, it says, because none of that aid was actually put to any good use. Egypt never came to their aid. Egypt never followed through on their promises in that covenant. And then in Isaiah 30, verse 7, he makes a comment about Egypt. He actually talks about Egypt itself coming under judgment as well. And he uses an interesting word for Egypt. He calls Egypt Rahab. Now, many of you know that name already, I'm sure, from the Old Testament. As we study the book of Joshua, we hear of Rahab helping the spies of Israel as they come into the land. But this is a, a different use of that word altogether. It's not being used here as a proper name. In fact, uh, if your Bible has the word Rahab capitalized, that's probably not uh, a good way to translate the word because it's not being used here as a proper name so much as it is being used as a description or creative use of language. The word in Hebrew for Rahab is actually a word that means big mouth or, or someone who talks a lot. Maybe that tells us a little bit about Rahab. I don't know. But it can also mean hippo. And I guess because the animal itself epitomizes a big mouth. You know, if you've ever seen the animal, you know what I'm talking about. 
And that's a classic use of, of language in Isaiah's typical way to describe Egypt. Uh, it's actually used to describe Egypt in several different places throughout the Old Testament, not just here. But it gets to this one specific moment when Egypt was asked to help Judah and didn't follow through. They had a big mouth. They were all talk and no walk. Even though they made all these promises, they, fell, they followed through on none of them. And they were in some ways like a hippo, a la- lazing around in the water all day, just opening your mouth and closing it. And nothing they said ever came to pass. None of the, nothing they promised ever occurred. And then chapter 30 continues with a description of how God will bring the Assyrians against them and follow them that he will show judgment against the Assyrians for the way they attacked Israel. So he gets his judgment both against Judah through Assyria's attack and then ultimately brings judgment against Assyria as well for the way in which they treated the Jewish people. Verse 8, now go, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, Since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have reviled on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man, you will flee at the threat of five. Until you are left at a flag, until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. So Isaiah records these words against Israel as a record of their disobedience and God's response, again, during the time of Assyria. So we've, we've gone into chapter 30 here, and we're focusing down now on just that near-term part of the prophecy, what was going on in Israel as they entered into the covenant, And what was God thinking about it as it happened? And Isaiah here uses really vivid language to describe some of the destruction of the city walls that were suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. Remember, even though they didn't breach through the city, there was an awful lot of war and battle right at the walls. And these uh, implements that they're using to, to send boulders over the wall or fire over the wall, whatever ways they could to siege the city, they caused death and mayhem in the city, and they were, it was a terrible experience if you lived in that city. I, I have to imagine it was probably something like living in, in London during the Battle of Britain. You never knew when it was going to fall on you. You never knew when they might break through and actually uh, take over your land, and it was a, a regular fearful uh, event until it was over. So it's a tremendous stress upon the city during this time. And to review how they got to that point, God takes them back through how it happened. He says in verse 9, this is a rebellious people. They refuse to listen to the instructions of the Lord. In fact, when God sent them seers and prophets to explain to them what God expected, they commanded these people not to teach them. And in fact, look at verse 10. He says that they said instead, speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Boy, I tell you what, that's a very contemporary reference if you understand what Scripture says about the last days of the church when men would appoint for themselves teachers of their own desires, men who would tickle their ears rather than teach them the truth of Scripture and the doctrines that God has presented in His Bible, is presented to us in Scripture. This is exactly the same pattern that was taking place within the nation of Israel prior to that judgment in the time of Isaiah. And we know that that's a similar occurrence during the times leading into tribulation. And it should tell you something about what it means in a church that we would have people who do not want to sit for teaching under the word of God. It's a dangerous thing and it leads ultimately to God's judgment against those who would not listen. And then they are told to say in verse 11, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, don't listen to God's word, let us hear no more about this holy one of Israel. And then I love the way Isaiah uses sarcasm here in verse 12. He says, well, 
if you won't listen to us tell you about the Holy One of Israel, then why don't you listen to the Holy One of Israel Himself? Because He says, since you've rejected this Word, God's Word in other words, and have put your trust in opposition, or oppression rather, and relied on them, therefore He says, I'm going to do these things to you. And He talks now about how the Assyrian uh, captivity of the city, or the, the Assyrian siege of the city, would bring such a great calamity upon them as long as it occurred. And as you look at this description, as I said already, it, it's, a, it's a pretty unnerving description of what's going on in that city. Smashing things, the walls being bulging uh, or, or about to breach. It's the sense that at any given moment in that day, in that city, on any day, there was a sense within the population that their lives were going to end that day. And then they go to bed and they wake up the next day and they have exactly the same experience day after day after day. And he says they did this, they're experiencing this because, he says, in verse 15, you were offered an alternative. The Holy One of Israel said, in repentance and rest, you can be saved. In quietness and in trust is your strength, but you were not willing. That's a reference to the way they were not willing to listen to Isaiah. When Isaiah said, you do not have to worry about the Assyrians being in your land. Their their presence in your land is by God's decree. It's judgment against you for what King Ahaz did. Do not antagonize God by trying to seek your own alliance to kick them out, but rather sit still, be quiet, accept that God is at work in this judgment, and accept his discipline, accept his chastening. But in verse 17 or verse 16, he said, No, you're not willing. They said instead, No, we will flee on horses. They're describing the fact that they would send messengers on horses down to Egypt to gain this alliance. And God says, well, because you want to flee on horses, you will actually flee, in fact, in the city. You will flee from this army. And you want to ride on swift horses, you said, well, therefore, I'm going to make this army that comes against you very swift. And you're going to flee at the threat. You're going to be fainting. You're going to be like a flag on a mountaintop. You're going to be an example to the world of the judgment I can bring against those who will not listen to me. But then in verse 18, there's just a hint of the fact that God, again, is not about destroying the people, but rather disciplining them. He says, I wait on high to have compassion on you. That compassion will come, but it awaits for a future day. And we know again in chapter 37, he eventually rescues the city. And that's where we'll end tonight. As we go into the rest of these chapters coming up, we'll begin to see more and more the details of how Assyria was coming against the city and how God did rescue them in the end. We get a nice focused narrative narrative on how this particular instance plays out and through it again we'll continue to see parallels to how God will deal with the nation of Israel in the time of tribulation.